0: Welcome back to the Second Look Podcast. In this episode, Pastor George talks with Dr. Brent Stenberg, director of the Christian Psychological Center, about what these many months of uncertainty and stress due to the pandemic and unrest in our country might be doing to our hearts and minds. Dr. Stenberg calls the result of these unprecedented times, soul weariness. Take a listen and be encouraged.
1: Well, good afternoon, uh, everyone. This is George Robertson. I'm the pastor of Second Presbyterian Church, and it is my privilege to have a conversation today with Dr. Brent Stenberg, who is the director of the Christian Psychological Center, which is uh, hosted here on the campus of, of uh, Second Presbyterian. We're, we're just delighted to be each other's neighbors, and uh, I'm also honored to call Brent a friend he's uh, ministered to my heart my family uh, uh my emotions uh a lot the lord has used him in my life as well so i'm eager for for you to hear his insights uh into what we're all uh what we're all going through and what we're what we're feeling and may not even understand what we're feeling. I I asked Brent recently, if he could tell me what I'm feeling, can you explain to me what I'm feeling and why am I feeling it? And uh, your insights, Brent, into um, soul weariness, uh, uh, your insights into what happens in the mind and heart as we go through very uncertain and traumatic things it's just been a a real blessing to me and recently to our staff you you spoke to uh our our whole church staff on uh weariness and the anxiety of the times we're going through not just with the pandemic but with the the social uh, strife and tensions that we're living through and I've heard from many of our staff people how how helpful that was. So I, I thought it would be helpful for those uh, tuning into the podcast if if you could uh, explain to them, tell them what they are feeling and why they're feeling it.
0: <laughs> I'm never sure half the time what I'm feeling either. So <laughs> we're all in that for sure. You know, I think that term, George, soul weary is an accurate one because We get tired sometimes, but a good night's rest or a good meal or that type of thing helps to refresh us. But a lot's been going on over the last several months that lead us to be weary. And I'd like to talk a little bit about two or three things with that. One is to talk maybe a little bit about what happens in the way that we approach the world, the way that God designed us, and how that impacts the weariness that we feel. And then talk some about the reasons for that weariness and then talk a little bit about what it is we can do in the midst of it to help build our own resilience in the midst That'd of all That would be time. great. The, the, the way that God designed us is that our brain is designed to help to reduce uncertainty. There's a part of our brain that looks at what's happening around us and seeks to make meaning of that. And so that part that is on alert all the time, we live right now in a situation that we've really never faced before because we've had times in our nation and certainly in our world where there have been disasters, where there have been things that have happened that have been very, very difficult. Some of those have been natural disasters like Katrina and some have been more human evil or terrorist disasters such as 9-11. But when things like that have happened, what's taken place is that they're in a particular location And they take place, and now we begin then to assess what it is that's taken place and begin then to rebuild or to address what it is that's happened. The problem with the pandemic, the problem with the coronavirus, is that we don't know exactly what caused it. We don't know what it is that keeps us safe. We don't know how long it will last. We don't know what the continued impact is going to be. And there's four things that that help us to reduce uncertainty. And I want to go over those and and, and talk about why all of those uh, are there, but why they're not in play right now when it comes to how we manage this and why that contributes to our weariness. The first is that part of what reduces uncertainty, obviously, is good information. So when we understand what's going on or what's happened in something or what we need to do next that information helps us even if it's a difficult situation to at least begin to develop a plan. But again, as we said, when we don't know what's causing it. We don't know what's going on. That created on the front end, a great deal of fear and anxiety for all of us. But right now, the part about information as we move forward is what ought we to do about school? What should we do about sending our kids? Will my job be secure? What do I do about going back to church? How do we make decisions about what's safe and not safe and so because of that we live in a world where our brain is always on alert trying to figure out what's the best course of action and part of the dilemma for us is because different people have different ways to think about it that also can create tension between us and other people as well and so regrettably some of what's going on rather than us all pulling together has become much more politicized and as a result of that There's difficulty not only in deciding what information is most accurate, but how do we pull together, which leads then to the second thing that reduces uncertainty or builds uh, a sense of security, which is social connection. Uh, For example, after 9-11, there was an increase, obviously, in phone calls and people meeting with each other. And there was an increase in peps purchased and there was an increase in church attendance and there was an increase in liquor by the drink, meaning that people wanted to be around other people. And so we seek that connection. And yet, in reality, in the midst of this, while we are able to connect virtually, we're living socially distance. And that physical touch or the ability just to connect with each other is not available to us. Also, as it's gone on and we're weary with it, you know, some of us have chosen to not take vacations. Others have chosen to take vacations. And so people post pictures from, say, Colorado, and others are like, that is so beautiful. And others are like, What the heck are you doing in Colorado? You should be here. You should be home. And so again, how do we make decisions? But how do we connect in the midst of it? And the connection is not there in the same way. A third thing that helps to reduce uncertainty is really this notion of having a time frame. We can do anything for a while if we know that it's time limited. And so for most of us, when the pandemic hit, we saw it really as a bit more of a sprint rather than being a long-term marathon. And so we did what was necessary. But now there's a weariness that comes because again, we don't know how long this will last. We don't know when we can make decisions in terms of um, being able to get back to normal or what normal might even look like. And then finally, we reduce uncertainty or it helps us to feel better when we can make plans and look forward to things. It's one thing if like my job is not going well, but I know next uh, month I'll be able to go with friends to do such and so. But right now we can't make those plans not and be secure that we'll be able to do those things. So our routines and our normal ways of operating, all of those have really changed. And so the result of that is that at first we have this acute stress and we have vicarious stress, meaning caring about people we care about and worrying about them. But all of us now are experiencing really what would be cumulative stress. We've risen to the occasion. we really get this fight or flight response. I've got to attack it or I've got to flee from it. And there's not much we can do and so as a result of it we end up in a position of just more freezing and just getting exhausted in the midst of it that uh, those are very very helpful
1: points um and uh, it does help explain uh so much and and it's very it's it's even more disturbing as you outline these things that how unique this time is uh, that, that we can, I, we can sometimes think that, Hey, I went through nine 11 and I don't feel like this, or I went through the uh, a war or something, but, but those were, as you said, disconnected from us, they were outside or they were time limited. Mm-hmm. And this is, would you, would you say this is a really unique time uh, in our lifetime? Is there anything that approaches something like this?
0: And not that I'm aware of or familiar with, because, again, it's worldwide. And, um, again, just the uncertainty of not knowing what to do and what to do next with it. I think it really is something that we've never really faced before
1: you've worked, uh, you, you work a lot with, uh, victims of trauma in Africa (laughs) and, uh, some of those dear people have, have endured ongoing, um, trauma and persistent terror, I suppose for, for a number of years. Um, what, what, what parallels would you draw between
0: those that you've dealt with there and what we're going through now? You know, I think that content can be different for different people in terms of severity or what those experiences are. But a lot of times we think about trauma as being an event that takes place, but really in many ways, trauma can be something that is more insidious and slow in developing. And so we have our predictable ways of living or we have our ways of what it is that's important to us. And then things happen around us that don't allow us those same opportunities. So for example, a person may say, my value is to provide for my kids in this way. Or or one of the things that I value is caring for my aging parents. Or one of the things that I value is being able to minister in these particular ways. And so we have our values that give us meaning and purpose, but in the midst of what's going on, the ways in which we have in the past exercise those values, the way we've followed through on them, many of those things are not available to us. So someone has a loved one in a hospital or somebody has a loved one who is in a nursing home and the inability to go and visit them, or somebody's not able to make provision because through no fault of their own, their job is now gone. And they're wondering what that future will look like. And so what we've found, for example, in some studies that have been done recently is that a year ago in the United States, That um, in terms of people who experience symptoms of depression, that uh, the thought was that about one in 15 people, not necessarily are clinically depressed, but experience some sort of depressive type symptoms. And that now, currently a year later, is one in four. And anxiety uh, a year ago would be, in terms of anxiety symptoms, the estimates were about one in 12, and the estimates now are one in three. So this notion in the myth of the chronic stress that everything's changing around us and how it's slowly unfolding without any end of where that's headed. Because even, for example, uh, I, I listened to some work that's been done recently where, um, for example, okay, we get a we get a vaccine and we're able to get the other side of it, or miraculously the, the virus is gone. The question is, what does life look like on the other side of that? Um, There's many ways. The virus itself is like throwing a huge rock in the water, but then there's all these ripples that go out from that. And so even when we're able to be safe again, we don't know how life's changed and we don't know what will happen spiritually, physically, economically. Will it come back? Those kinds of things. So we've tremendously lost the ways to predict what it is that gives us security. And that, I think, is dramatic. For most of us on some level especially when it doesn't allow us to predictably uh, live out our meaning and purpose
1: those are those are fascinating statistics and uh, I, I, I it's been my just my experience in pastoring that that it's not uh rocket science but the number of people describing themselves as depressed or anxious or having panic attacks Mm-hmm. has certainly increased and uh, increased among people who have, who have really been unaccustomed to that kind of feeling ever before.
0: Yes.
1: And then, and so what I, and, and then another thing I've noticed is that people are feeling themselves to be particular failures. Mm-hmm. So what I hear is <clears throat> uh, expressed to me, my, it's a failure of faith. You know, I am, you know, think about all the people who have suffered uh, in, in the course of of, uh, of human history, church history. Think of think of what people are going through right now in China or or uh, in the Middle East who are being persecuted for their faith. So, what is wrong with me that that this produces such anxiety, such depression? It must be a failure of my faith. It must be I must be living by fear, not by faith. It's not. It's not really helpful, is it, to compare and contrast yourself and your emotional reaction to someone else's. Um, But uh, what would you say to 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 someone? Each each of us has a different threshold. Each of us has a unique wiring. Um, So, what would you say to someone who is defeating themselves, adding to what they're an already um, tense and defeated uh uh, emotional experience this defeatist mindset yeah
0: it's a good point that we're god wired us each differently and whether that's threshold for being able to manage this or just the way that we're designed some people who may be more towards introverted may not be experiencing near the struggles that somebody who's more extroverted in terms of how uh, they're they're wired or somebody who is not as effective and has a stronger self-efficacy or hardiness, may not have the same impact as somebody who's experiencing more suffering or has had more suffering in the past that gets reactivated. But I think the thing, if there's no other message that I would want to communicate, it's that when we lose faith, it's coming because of the exhaustion, that, that this cumulative stress that we're under, that cannot be underestimated. And Tim Keller, who many of us are familiar with, he's a pastor and a writer and a speaker. So Seconds had him a couple times to come speak, but very influential in the evangelical community. He said that there are really three things that are just crucial that we pay attention to. And he was talking about the very thing that you're saying in terms of not looking at this just through a grid of, is my face strong or not? And so he talks about self-care and he talks about being resilient without stoicism. And he talks about that things have changed. And, and I can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But the reality is, is that when we are exhausted and we are weary, and when we're caught in that uh, freeze state emotionally where the mind is running and we're, we're weary, that people either get more anxious or more discouraged or depressed or more irritable or a combination of all three. And everything seems important and nothing seems important. And that inability, it feels like you're in neutral or like you're, the car's in gear, but it's just revving and, and, and the wheels can't get traction. So it's very normal for some people to feel that exhaustion. It's the same thing as in grief. Some people feel God very close to them when they're in the midst of grieving. Others feel that God is very far away. C.S. Lewis felt that God was far away after the death of his of of, of his wife said i don't not believe in god but 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 right now when i most need heaven to be a warm place it doesn't feel that way to me Or, or martin luther in the midst of when he was going through times of depression and i won't get the quote right but he wrote and he said you know when i'm depressed the content's always the same i wonder if god is good and if god is good to me and so our emotions or our weariness or you see many stories in the bible elijah for example when uh, after after his his uh, 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 battle with the with with the prophets of Baal, he gets depressed, and, and and God comes to the angel comes to him and says, "Look, rest, eat. God'll meet up with you." So, the ability to remember our humanity and that God is in the midst of that with us is so crucial, as opposed to deciding that somehow our faith is not strong.
1: It's a great word, and it's a it's a great uh, place to pivot toward uh, practical suggestions for how people can not just cope, but ultimately thrive in a time like this. And you started down that path, uh, quoting from from Tim's uh, wonderful. Uh, uh, a video that that he made, as as some of us urged him uh, to to speak into it for uh, the benefit of us all, um, and uh, you, you, I, and I'll just say this before you before you answer it. It struck me that when you mentioned Martin Luther, uh, the hymn that he's most famous for, of course, is a mighty fortress based on on Psalm forty six. Uh, God is my refuge and strength, and ever-present help in trouble. And the psalmist strategy in times of of wavering faith is never uh, to work on himself. Is it? Mm-hmm. It's never. Uh, boy, I'm my faith is weak, so I need to improve my faith. It's rather my faith is weak. Lord, I need you.
0: Yeah.
1: Lord, I need to remember your attributes. I need you to refresh me in what is true. You're the mighty fortress. You're the ever-present help in trouble. Yeah. Um, we're not called to fix ourselves. We're, we're, we're only called to turn toward the only one who, who can. But what does that look like practically?
0: You know, it's interesting just to, to stay on that for a while, or for a minute. Um, if you think about in a car, when the check engine light comes on, you've got three options. One option is you can put a piece of duct tape over it so you can't see it. Another is to pull the fuse so it goes off. Or to recognize that the problem is not the check engine light, but that's an indicator that something under the hood is amiss. And in the same way, when we see ourselves more anxious or more depressed or wondering about our faith, and that's not our typical way, then seeing that as a symptom, meaning that there's something going on that I'm exhausted about. And like you said, turning to God as opposed to trying to fix it by ourselves is really key so i really resonate with that and so i'd like to just use use tim's four points but just kind of use those as a springboard and the first that he talked about was self-care and 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 that's obviously talk about that and self-care is certainly not self-centeredness but it's really looking at how do i take care of my body how do i take care of my mind what is it that allows me to be resilient in the midst of just the exhaustion that's going on. Because again, remember, the brain is searching. The body's following that. We're weary. So in the body, we want to look at how do we relax our body? And there's really two things that are are really non-negotiables. One is exercise. And I know that for some people, they can't get out. But um, getting that walk-in being able, like, for example, with the kids in the evening doing a dance party, <laughs> the whole group, uh, for myself, I put in a Tai Chi tape uh, from, from YouTube. I cannot get those moves down at all, but it was just fun to try and do something different, which just made me laugh, made Claudia laugh, but just moving your body is really crucial. And a lot you of think
1: you could produce that video for, I mean, it would be very healing for us to watch you, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah, and, and, and then I'll <laughs> need to work on my shame. <laughs> But no, the the thing is, is when we feel weary, we don't feel like exercising. So we'll just sit down, we'll veg in front of the TV, we'll eat too much. But the physical movement flushes out the stuff that's being shot into our system all day. So another part of exercise is like literally if you every couple hours stop what you're doing, take five or six deep breaths and just stretch your body and, and do sixth grade calisthenics a little bit, but just stretching slowly and breathing you'll notice, I didn't realize my back was so tight, or wow, my 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 my, my uh, uh, I'm just zooming right now. So it becomes a way to notice where is my stress level at a given point. So physical exercise is crucial. The other that's a non-negotiable to the body is the breath, is breathing. If you look during the midst of all that's going on, it's shocking how often we are just shallow breathing. And when that happens, we're breathing from the top third of our lungs. And yet underneath the bottom two thirds, there's a nerve that that stimulated helps to stimulate a relaxation response. So paying attention to just breathing very deeply and being able to breathe slowly, slowing our bodies down is crucial. They did what's called a meta study, which is a study of studies to say, what is the best relaxation technique? And there are all these different ones and people say it's this, it's that, it's the other, but they found that the number one best relaxation technique is whichever one you'll do. Pure and simple. That's just different for different people. But they all involve the breath. They all involve slowing the body down. And so exercise and those types and and, uh, the breathing are really, really important. George, the third thing I think is important for our body, you've talked about in sermons, and that's establishing a daily rhythm. If we're going to sit down to eat, let's sit down and have a meal and turn off everything around us. The problem in working from home is that you always can work. And so that notion about, as you've talked about, setting a rhythm of when I'm working and when I'm not working, when I'm with the family, when I'm not with the family, when we're gonna eat, when I'm gonna exercise, and you can't have it that rigid, but some of the big rocks, make sure that there's time for those things, because by creating structure like that, that will result in a reduction in a lot of the tension that we're feeling. So those are the three things on the body. On the mind, It's really finding ways to calm our brain, because, again, when it's just going, 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 the body helps to calm and it calms our brain. But also having visual images, having songs you may listen to, having a book on tape. One of the things, for example, for those that 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 are regular in Bible reading is to have a Bible that's an audio Bible, because being read to hits a different part of the brain than reading. And all we're on alert all the time, trying to figure everything out. Sometimes it just feels good to be read to, or to listen to music, or to have a book that we listen to, or to have certain images of a hike that you've loved, a place that's beautiful to you. And having those things and going those places helps to calm the brain. Calming the brain calms the body. Calming the body calms the uh, calms the brain. But having that notion about rhythms, about your your mind, about your body. Taking good care, those things are just essential in reducing the chronic stress we feel. The second thing that he talks about is about resilience without stoicism. And what, he, what, what Keller meant by that is that we've got to look at what is the impact of all of this on me personally. Some are like, ah, I'm too busy caring for others. I don't need to think about myself. Others like, well, if I admit that I'm getting weary, uh, then I'm weak-willed. I'm not going to admit it. Don't let them see you sweat. You know, those types of things. But we've got to understand what's the impact for us. And there's really a couple things that can help with that in terms of some detective work. One is there's a little technique called uh, depleters and restorers. And so at the end of the day, it's sitting down and saying, what today restored me? What did I enjoy? Where did I feel a little energy? Where did I feel I accomplished something? Where did I feel happy? Whatever it is, things that were, were, um, were uh, restorers. And then the second question is, is where did I feel exhausted? Where did I feel depleted? Where did I feel irritated? Where did I feel anxious? And writing those things out, you begin to see the kinds of things that help to energize you, and you're going to see the things that deplete you. Sometimes they're events or daily hassles, but a lot of times it's how we're thinking about things. And so the more we can be aware of our thoughts and our behaviors, it's really looking at how do I increase the restorers? And how do I decrease the depleters? And it allows us to do some detective work to see where we're getting caught. An example might be a person who realizes, you know, the other day I just drove a new way home or I stopped by a park for about 10 minutes. That just really felt good. And so it's like, boy, how do I put some of those things in? So it's beginning then to list the kinds of things that are energizers and then using that as a menu, asking others what they do that helps in that way, and then building variety in. The other thing that can help in terms of understanding ourselves, and especially to reduce anxiety, is I really encourage people to develop what we'll call a worry notebook. And that's you take a separate piece of paper for everything you're concerned about, and you put whatever that is on the top of that page, and then just write about what it is about this that is troublesome to you. What is it that catches you in this? What are the fears? What are the worries? And then being able to say, what of this can I control? What do I need to give to God? What can I be the warehouseman for? You know, I can make some changes. What do I need to give to God? But what we find is, is that if people will write out the kinds of things that they're worried about, it clears space in the brain. Because otherwise, it's just rumbling around in our head and heart. And when we externalize it, sometimes it is less anxiety arousing for us. And second of all, if I start worrying about something, I can ask myself, have I already written about that? I have, then there's two questions. Is there anything I can do about it now? And if not, okay. And second of all, tonight, I'm going to go back and review the list. Because that's the other thing. not only writing them out, but going back and reviewing them. People think, well, if I go back and review it, then somehow that's going to result in me feeling worse. Maybe for some people, it does make them feel worse. For others, it's kind of like, okay, let me pray through this. And now let me close the book. Let me set it aside. So people are different as how to approach it. But the writing about that can help and to understand those things. So resilience is about meaning and purpose. How do I live out my values even though I'm limited? Social support. Who am I connected to? Who do I love and who loves me? And then the third is how am I doing with just seeking to live best I can in the midst of all that's going on? And that's the rhythm. And then the other thing that Keller talked about is a willingness to recognize that Things are different and may never go back to normal, whatever normal looks like. And so we have to recognize that the way we've lived in the past, maybe we'll get back to that, but we've got to realize what's possible now. And so Keller says, look, if we take care of ourselves, if we're resilient, if we really look to accept what we can't change, then he says the fourth thing is, is just go out and get on with it. Go out and live the day. And each day is going to be different and each day has its troubles. And each day can be overwhelming or be good. But it's really saying, let me be present to what's taking place. Let me let people walk with me. Let me let God walk with me. And the final thing I'd say, George, that can be helpful is in terms of the spiritual aspects, it's really praying through our concerns rather than being concerned and then going to pray. And one thing that's helpful for many people is taking the 23rd Psalm, which is about God walking, leading us, God walking with us in adversity in all of our life. And God is behind us, leading us home. And you go through that psalm and then go back and it says, he leads me to the side, still waters. He restores my soul. And stopping there and perfectly considering where does my soul need restoration? And then bringing that to God within the context of the psalm, within the context of prayer. And that allows us to integrate faith in the midst, knowing that God knows our soul needs restoration and knowing that our faith is weak. In many ways, but, but, but he loves us and it's about him and him giving us his power and glorious might, not us trying to figure that out on our own. So bringing those spiritual resources in those ways can make all the difference in the world as well.
1: That's a beautiful point. And thank you for highlighting uh, Tim Keller's words and its public knowledge now, of course, that he's battling cancer. Yes. And uh, I can tell you that uh, he's he's putting into practice what he's commended to the rest of us, and um, he and Kathy uh, really practice what they preach. And let's all remember to pray for the colors.
0: Yeah.
1: I um, and just to put a, a to accent uh, another wonderful point you made and that is the, how eager the father is for us to talk to him to keep talking to him and to use the psalms <clears throat> as that language uh, for expressing ourselves to him uh, it's it's wonderful how raw and how honest the psalms are and they and they they give us god gives us a vocabulary doesn't he to to express our questions or our concerns or our our emotions. We have to remember that the Holy Spirit wrote those psalms. God gave us that vocabulary. Even the vocabulary that says, "You have done this to me. You you have left me. Your your face is is hidden, or the darkness is my closest friend." God gives us those words by which to externalize our emotions, like you said, and and uh, you've you've uh, you've trained me in writing out those emotions too which i was a little suspicious of at first but it works and i i, I really can attest to that uh, lewis called that kind of praying that you were describing festooning our prayer festooning festooning the songs or festooning the the scriptures with our prayers is taking a, a a phrase from scripture and then unpacking it um, to our own situation I think one other thing that I that you've made me think of is what we've experienced here at church uh, uh, and that is how inexpressibly healing and relieving it is for people to go to corporate worship I don't I want to be very careful with that not to imply to anyone that only you know truly spiritual people will come physically to the sanctuary. I don't mean that uh, people need to return when the Lord tells them to return. But uh, those who have, have come back, or even if they've joined their families with other families that they're related to in worshiping together before uh, a video screen, there is that there's uh, something happens there that can't be objectified that the psalmist describes when he said, my foot had almost slipped when I was probably just brooding over the way he had been mistreated in his own mind. But when we, when we connect with the Lord in worship, especially with brothers and sisters, there's, there is, there is something that there is some holistic healing that uh, the Lord works in us. And, and um, that, that was coming out in, the things that you've said too, and I've heard you say in the past. Well, thank you very much for your time.
0: Yes, enjoy it.
1: And uh, for the way you so generously use your gifts uh, to bring healing in the name of Christ to all of us. Thank you. So Lord,
0: appreciate it. We
1: offer blessings it. on your ministry and on your family, and we'll talk to you again soon, my friend.
0: Sounds good. Take good
1: care. Okay, bye bye.